Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, uh, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of inviting back to the podcast, Dr. Uta Huskin, who is uh, head of the Department of Cultural and Religious History of South Asia at the South Asia Institute at Heidelberg University. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's my delight. Uh, as you can tell, I'm 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 delighted by a number of of, of books, but it, it is a true delight to to be speaking today about um, a collected volume of of, of essays um, called uh, "Laughter, Creativity, and Perseverance," and the subtitle. Uh, female agency in Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, very exciting stuff. Tell us a bit about uh, the genesis, the backstory of this project. Well, I mean, like so many of my projects, it is a collaborative, uh, the outcome of an collaborative endeavor. And uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I think I have always... Uh, throughout my academic career, worked on gender issues of sorts, uh, very often not being aware of it. But um, at some point, I realized that uh, um, there's, um, yeah, there's something going on right now in these traditions, at least in those traditions that I know of uh, within Hinduism and Buddhism, that seems to be, well, at least from some perspectives, a radical change, Um, meaning that uh, there are more and more female actors who... Yeah, occupy um, positions of religious or, or ritual leadership that they have been excluded from before. And of course, I i mean, the few case studies I know of are just uh, only a few. So I, I was actually originally planning for to apply for a big project and in the context of preparing for this project i uh, convened a um, workshop in heidelberg so at heidelberg university and i was inviting a few uh, women and men who are working on similar issues and uh, it was very important for me at that point also to invite a number of junior researchers because uh, most exciting work is actually coming from the young people and I'm now as a senior scholar I can say that <laughs> so yeah so we had a wonderful workshop we over three days we uh, we're giving presentation, we're discussing, and um, I feel that at that workshop, it was especially especially the connections we were able to establish, let's say, behind the scenes were of special importance because 
um, there was a sense of collegiality and sharing that was really extraordinary. And um, I do think that the last uh, chapter in this volume, which is uh, authored by Carolyn Starkey, and which talks about methods and, um, well, problems sometimes, researching issues that are connected to female agency in religious traditions, uh, that actually speaks of this spirit because uh, Carolyn uh, also continued the discussion with all of the researchers afterwards. And we were talking about our research processes, the disappointments, but also, of course, the small victories that we had. And um, that was, a, I mean, that was basically facilitated by the, this really very collegial spirit during this workshop. I also think that uh, this workshop and also I think we had one panel in 2019 then at the AAR in San Antonio, some of us at least had, uh, that was, um, that is why I, at least I feel that the different contributions to this volume are really, they speak to each other and they address topics um, from different angles. So I, I'm really happy about it, this volume. That's yeah, we, we, we touched on this aspect um, when during your last podcast, which had um, um, a similar paradigm of, 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 a, of a fruitful workshop. And really, it, it really is an admirable MO uh, in terms of, at least to my mind, you know, holding space for scholarly community um, and, and seeing what happens with the cross-pollinations and the conversations. And they're always more than the sum of their parts. And and then invariably you have either, um, uh, you know, let's share this, right? Let's publish this or let's do something with this. I mean, that's how we first came in touch with the your brilliant mm-hmm. um, uh, bringing together of people interested in, 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 in Navratri. And uh, and I, I really think it's useful for scholars to to there may be some among us who take that for granted as a fruitful avenue, but also um, to, to really foreground, you know, bringing people together and seeing what happens. Uh, I had the good fortune of attending a symposium. I think um, it, it was in Toronto where, where I'm based at the University of Toronto. It was uh, Srila Taraman that put together this phenomenal lineup of speakers on, uh, it was a uh, Vaikunta topics really yeah that's right i couldn't yeah. resist because i just happened to be guest lecturing at the uft and i saw the poster you know let me sign up i've got to i've got to come so that the magic then happens right and and you, you could tell by the last day by the last luncheon everyone was engrossed in conversations about oh who will do this part of the volume or what should we do now or how you know and it's it really really is magical so uh, thank you for holding that space for so many of us and uh, and for the fruits of that labor so uh, more on the fruit of this labor. Um, how and how how is you know? Feel free to say a word about that last chapter. I think it would be a, a great uh, thing to touch on. Uh, perhaps since you mentioned it, in terms of um, you know female agency in Buddhism and Hinduism, and uh, the subtitles methodolo- methodological reflections and collective commitments. Maybe say a yeah. bit of a word on that last sec- last chapter. That is the only chapter in the fourth section and then maybe we could talk about the structure of the sections of of the of the of the book yeah sure so this this last chapter as you rightly say is the only chapter in this fourth section um but i do think it's a very important chapter for the book as such because 
um, yeah, in this, uh, Carolyn Starkey reflects together with the contributors to the um, volume on yeah, our own position and attitudes in the field. How, for example, especially when women are researching on women's issues, how our political stances would or can't at least impact our research. And um, uh, this was, a, yeah, the her, her uh, chapter is a result of a continuing conversation with the different contributors over, um, over months, I would say. So, uh, yeah, there's also this kind of tricky questions um, whether we as researchers actually understand agency in relation to Buddhist and Hindu traditions similar to the people we are looking at or who are we who we are working with, who are we, are we doing research on. And what happens when, when we suddenly realize that uh, our own political commitments might, might be very different from the ones that uh, the people we, we are working on are. So and, and feminism is here a big word, a big trigger word, the F word that no one dares to speak about because it, it uh, especially when, at least that's my experience, when you work with women in religious settings, uh, this is it's very often perceived as some kind of aggressive Western stance uh, of claiming rights and so on. And so, so many of us said that we actually avoid this term altogether in order to, <laughs> yeah, in order to be able to do our research at the same time. I do think that many of us do have uh, what I would call a feminist attitude, but I would also say that many of the people we're working on are, um, have a feminist attitude, even though they themselves would not use the term. So all these conflicts um, while doing research, difficulties, and also, I mean, basically the necessity, which is very fruitful in the end to question your own uh, commitment, your own attitude, and maybe come out of this research process as a different person. So, yeah, that is all addressed by Carolyn. And I do think that this is a, a chapter which might be especially useful for young researchers who are looking for some kind of um, not guarded, but open guidance and an um, open uh, presentation of problems you might encounter when you're doing research like that. Well, it's... Yeah. I found it to be exceptionally rich and because, you know, one can, one could easily um, um, derive insights for all kinds of conversations and fieldwork and the categories that we use and the commitments that are implied in our particular, you know, uh, um, genders or stances or, or even subjects. And I, I found it fascinating. You know, I have not heard it referred to as the as the f word before well that's i, I may use that at some oh, point. Yeah, but, but i but i have said to people that in certain contexts i'll avoid myth because it's a four-letter word for yeah. a lot of people so it's your and, <laughs> yeah exactly it's a four-letter word and and what i find especially fascinating is um 
this 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 issue with categories and discourse and what we do as scholars is you know we, we intellectualize and we adopt categories and we massage categories and just you know maybe take a breath even before all that and just see what people are doing and see what they're calling it and yeah. it may well map well onto the categories we use or not but just get a sense of how they think about what they're doing and i, I think that's that's clearly a rich chapter Yes, and this also very often, I mean, I find this especially in um, Buddhist contexts, that uh, it is uh, somehow very difficult to talk about, let's for let's say, for example, the question of uh, ordination for uh, women in Theravada Buddhism, because on the one hand, there is this... Um, yeah, idea of the non-self and uh, so on. At the same time, there are women who are demanding something. So how do you bring that uh, together? And how do the women themselves bring that together? I mean, it's it's very fascinating, but uh, not easy. Not as easy as you would in, might in, want. In, indeed, indeed, important work and not easy. Um, and I suppose if this work was easy, this would all be ironed out after decades of scholarship <laughs> and millennia of religious history. Um, but uh, maybe tell us a bit about the structure, the different sections of the of the work. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, uh, we subdivided the contributions, or we 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 found that the the contributions address. Uh, mainly three different domains, and uh, these are, that's what we labeled, uh, renewing religion in female spaces, um, then appropriation of male spaces, and uh, performing religion publicly. That doesn't mean that uh, the different contributions only address this topic, but that they mainly, I mean, speak to this to a certain, let's say, range of, of topics. So in the first uh, uh, section, there is Valeria Gazizova, who uh, writes, um, her contribution is entitled Exclusion, Secrecy, and the Underground, Dynamics of Female Religious and Ritual Agency in Kalmykia. And um, that is, um, I mean, Kalmykia is a republic in southwestern Russia, and it's actually the only region in Europe where Buddhism is in fact historically practiced. And Valeria here looks at the transportation, I would say, of religious transmission from male to female spaces. And um, this, uh, I mean, this transportation with, which happened in the Soviet area. Um, and uh, the, yeah, so the Soviet area era, which was certainly of, uh, yeah, very traumatic in many ways, it paradoxically also brought uh, new opportunities for women who then were able to reposition themselves as religious specialists and also religious leaders. And um, it's, it's very fascinating how uh, the lower status of women as opposed to that of men in the pre-socialist Kalmykia society um, and their actually their exclusion from Buddhist establishment then allowed them to become important transmitters of religious and ritual knowledge. 
And that's uh, what is captured with this term underground, because uh, this is, um, of course, metaphorically used, this word, but it's also literally because some of the places where religion then in the Soviet era was um, practiced was, in fact, underground. So that's a very interesting and fascinating case study. I could talk about it very long because also Valeria is currently right now, she's in Heidelberg as a postdoc researcher with a project. So we are in constant contact on this topic. This, um, without, um, without exaggerating, we easily could have a podcast on each of these contributions. They're fascinating. <laughs> as, I'm, as you're well aware, they're rich and they're fascinating. And with with luck, uh, some of these authors will perhaps uh, uh, appear on the podcast, perhaps to yeah, talk about monographs or developments. Yeah, sure. Right. Then uh, the second um, contribution in this um, uh, renewing religion and female spaces section is by Ina Ilkamer. And this is entitled, This is not a home, it is a temple, creative agency in Navaratri Kolu. And here you can see some overlap with other projects that we, I mean, the Navaratri project that we had for quite a number of years. And Ina has uh, done her uh, research um, in Kanchipuram, a place where I'm also um, doing a lot of my research. And she has looked at the transformation of the Kolo practices and uh, has looked at them as um, practices that are transforming within female spaces, where it was extremely important that now new female actors were taking over. And basically what she has been uh, ma mainly dealing with is the um, well transfer of the Kolo practice from Brahmin to non-Brahmin actors and how does that transform what these practices do and mean to the actors and how uh, where are the continuities but also where are the changes when suddenly Kolo is practiced in non-Brahmin households and this is it's really fascinating um, and uh, yeah a great piece to read so I can highly recommend this so, so, so these two these two um contributions that are that are the two that contribute to this idea of renewing religion in female spaces mm. is, is there a word or two we can say about that overarching concept or uh, is this perhaps uh, surprising in a sense or you know do, do you want to make a comment about the category well i i would say it's only surprising if you understand agency as connected mainly to uh resistance and challenging of existing hierarchies however if you understand agency as encompassing much more than that and also um un understand practices of compliance um as agency and if you look at the yeah look for agency in also small acts of changes uh, then it is not surprising. So, I mean, here we strongly, very, very strongly rely, of course, on the seminal work of Saba Mahmoud and also Joanna Cook and others who um, uh, have clearly shown that uh, it is extremely important to, um, yeah, to turn away from 
definitions of agency that uh, only understand agency as resistance. And here I would say, especially when you look at those practices that change within female spaces, they can easily be overlooked, but not if you take them seriously. So thank you for driving that home for our listeners. That was a beautiful insight. Okay, so section two, what do we have? Well, that's appropriation of male spaces. And that's, um, well, there's, um, I don't know how many contributions, a few are there, at least three, four. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't count them. Um, so, so the first uh, contribution here is by Tarini Bedi. And she's, uh, uh, she's writing about body politics and the gendered politics of Hindu militancy. She's seen our women and political agency in Western India. And she uh, uh, writes here about the dashing ladies, the dashing ladies in uh, Maharashtra who appropriate these traditional male spaces of activity that is uh, policing and uh, politics. And Tarini's focus is on the women of Shiv Sena. And she shows how agency in this specific nationalist movement is not only the capacity to act, but also, and importantly, the capacity to act with and through the body. And that, she, that is what the, the women themselves um, label dashing. And um, which kind of um, means, uh, yeah, the capacity to display public anger. So in the in a wider sense of the, of the word. So that's the first um, contribution, and that somehow summarizes parts of Tarini's book on the dashing ladies of Shivsena, and it really fits. Uh, very nicely into this section. The next contribution is um, um, the the article that's called Buddhist Radicalism, a Vehicle for Female Empowerment, question mark. And that is uh, by Melon McKay and Islin Friedenlund. They deal with women uh, who are connected to radical Islamophobic Buddhist organizations in contemporary Myanmar and Sri Lanka. And basically this is, let's say, a contribution that is very early in their research on the topic. And they explore why women would sympathize with such ideologies and why they would participate in these movements. And um, especially, well, let's say um, puzzling is here that these nationalist movements, like so many others, um, are particularly concerned with controlling the female body and concerned with female reproduction. So Buddhist radical groups, they call for regulation of marriages between Buddhist women and non-Buddhist men. And they call for family planning policies for non-Buddhists, including legal regulation of women's reproductive health. And these laws, interestingly, they uh, enjoy widespread support also among women. And so the question is, what's happening there? Why do women support this? And... um, I mean, at least as a preliminary finding, the authors find that uh, 
through membership and activities within these organizations, it seems that the women who are participating are able to access broader lay networks and monastic networks, which then allows them to operate as, uh, yeah, let's say, protectors of Buddhism. And that is, in fact, a role that um, the religious tradition traditionally are reserves for men. So in that sense, um, that seems to be very helpful for them and seen seen very positively. So that's, that is one of the contribution which kind of rattles your idea, not only of Buddhism as a people religion, but I think this is, uh, well, has been debunked long ago, but also yeah, of the role of women uh, within I mean, some, yeah, certainly somewhat provocative or thought-provoking or yeah. even paradoxical that to, to to surrender agency in one domain in order to, to to perhaps bolster agency in another. I mean, it's fascinating, right? And 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 it's data that just absolutely resists a binary approach. Uh, you know, it's it it forces you to to think, right? Yeah, so definitely, yes. Then there's another, in this section, there's another contribution on a Buddhist setting that is by Amy Langenberg and is called Laughing on the Rooftop, Female Buddhist Agency as Local in Lumbini, Nepal. And uh, Amy's daughter actually uh, took the wonderful picture that is on the cover of the book. So I really need to emphasize that I'm very happy that she was uh, <laughs> providing this great picture, which so nicely shows what we're talking about. Anyway, Amy, uh, in her contribution, she uh, talks about the Peace uh, Grove uh, Institute, which is a monastic space that is, however, not for men or, or boys, but for girls. So again, here, this is a space that is traditionally only uh, available to male members of uh, uh, Buddhist communities, but here it is specifically for girls. And um, what it does, it actually provides, a, on the one hand, socially safe space for the girls, and on the other, it allows them to delay marriage and to continue education. The, this is, of course, not, this does not, this Peace Grove Institute does not exist in, in isolation, but it's um, it heavily relies, in fact, on the cooperation also of the girls' mothers, who strongly support this. Um, but at the same time, Amy is able to show how this institute is also a creation of the girls, of the resident girls themselves, so that they are able to shape what is happening and how things are happening in this institution, which, uh, I mean, speak of agency of girls and especially agency of children, which is also, I think, a very important topic here. So that's a really fascinating contribution. Then the another uh, contribution uh, here is by Shefali More, and she has uh, her article is uh, entitled "Right to Pray," comparing Shani Shingnapur and Shabrimala. Shefali, um, who is a PhD student here in Heidelberg. She here deals with the actual process and the legal proceedings and also uh, actually with the public repercussions of allowing women to enter 
Hindu places of worships, uh, which were previously st strictly out of their reach. And what she does is she uh, compares this process on the one hand in Shabrimala, in Kerala, and on the other end in Shani Shingnapur, which is a, a Shani temple in Maharashtra. And she shows how this depending, I mean, depending on the public discourse, but also on the different uh, yeah, agents uh, active there, uh, unfolds very differently. So, but interestingly, it is in both cases, only the public and the loud challenge by women that actually initiates a public discussion of these bands of women to these places. And uh, what Shefali does in her uh, chapter is that she analyzes the arguments um, by the authorities of the places of worship. She looks at the arguments used by the women who challenge the, the regulation. She also highlights the legal complications in these matters and also what the public discussion does to it, and especially the role of social media in these uh, processes. I mean, uh, at least here in Europe, even, I mean, the uh, Shabrimala case was in the news for uh, several weeks. It was quite interesting because usually um, such news from India are not that prominently displayed on, in the standard news. So, yeah, that was um, that is something that also kind of spilled over to other cultural areas. Yeah, and then the last section is the section on perform, which is entitled "Performing Religion Publicly," and here we have the three contributions. Yes, three Correct. contributions. One is by Priyanka Ramlakan. Um, uh, entitled Hindu Women and the Gendering of Religious and Ritual Authority in Trinidad. She deals with two Hindu women or with three Hindu women in Trinidad whose religious activities in very different ways take place in the public. And um, uh, and she highlights actually the trajectories of these two women. One um, is a pandita, a priestess, and the other one is a nao, that is uh, something like a priest assistant. Both roles are um, new for women now. And um, she looks at how this plays out how it is accepted in public or not accepted in public, how these women are challenged. But at the same time, what she highlights is also how these two women basically understand their role and enact their new role very differently. So, for example, the letter, the priest assistant is um, she is from a, a rural area of Trinidad and at the she is not only the priest assistant, but she's also a ritual expert and healer who uh, 
basically can read a local mud volcano goddess, which is who is called Balka Devi. And much of her authority and acceptance within the community and beyond the community really comes from, from this close connection to the goddess Balka Devi, rather than uh, from her being a priest's um, assistant. The and um, I know uh, close to nothing about uh, uh, this uh, religiosity, Hindu religiosity in in the Caribbean. So for me, this is an extremely interesting case study. The next uh, section, ah, yeah, that's my own article. <laughs> <laughs> I I am writing. Here, uh, the, I entitled the contribution Tradition, Innovation and Resistance, Training Girls in Sanskrit and Vedic Rituals. And what I look at here is the, uh, uh, the school for girls, uh, in uh, school for girls in Varanasi, the Panini Kanya Mahavidyalaya. Um, that is a school for girls that was established in the 70s. And... Um, it, uh, I mean, it's in the tradition or, uh, oh, no, let's put it like that. They, yeah, they're, they're uh, on the one hand, their focus in terms of learning is very strongly on Panini and grammar and on Vedic rituals. And at the same time, the girls are also trained in martial arts, in yoga, in music and computer sciences. And what is uh, quite striking, and many of the listeners to this podcast might have seen these girls if they were in Benares, because since 2014, they also publicly perform um, a Vedic Homa in, at Asigat and recite uh, Vedic mantras there. And that is part, I mean, they do this as a part of the uh, program Suba e Banares this morning in Banares program that many of you might know. And what I'm looking at is basically what kind of strategies these women and um, in employ to integrate in a tradition that excludes them. So how what is the way of uh, argumentation and how do they understand the text differently from their male counterparts? But then also, yeah, what what else is there on their agenda, but also what is on the agenda of those who still until today resist this. Um, yeah. And then the uh, last um, um, contribution to this section is by Antoinette Elizabeth de Napoli, and it's called, I will be the Shankaracharya for women. Gender agency and a girl's quest for equality in Hinduism, and she explores the strategies of a female religious leader to acquire a space for a women ascetics group among the Akaras during the Kumbh Mela, and uh, she's focusing on Trikal Bhavanta Saraswati, who is called Mataji. She's also a very public person, so many might might actually at least have seen her, uh, who demands gender equality and the inclusion of women 
in a tradi religious tradition that again has traditionally excluded women and also low caste from leadership roles. And this woman, so uh, Mata Jishi, uh, actually strategically calls herself uh, Swayambhu Shankaracharya with long R at the end, so female Shankaracharya. So a self-made female Shankaracharya and, and uh, understands that very much in contrast to an appointed or an inherited position. So uh, Antoinette uh, um, shows how she, yeah, in, in interviews defines herself, how she on the one hand aligns with uh, what you could call a strong feminist agenda, on the other end also distances herself from that. Yeah, that's basically what we have in this uh, volume. Oh, uh rich array of case studies i mean you know i mean a wide variety of methods and and spaces and um traditions uh within hinduism and buddhism um do you want to maybe say a word about this process for you i mean taking the bird's eye view looking at all these papers bringing them all together i mean you make some insightful remarks of course in your in your introductory contribution but do you want to share a little bit about what struck you about the volume as a whole or, or how this process was for you bringing this together? Well, what I, what I find quite interesting that um, it's, at least it seems to me that um, if you wanted, you could cast a much wider net and not only, uh, um, I mean, that we restricted ourselves to Hindu and Buddhist traditions is, um, uh, is not really called for when you look at the topic. So because you can see similar developments in currently in the Catholic Church. Um, I'm not so sure about Jain tradition, but I'm sure there would be some, we would do one would find something. Of course, Muslim traditions are um all, all these, let's say, movements, these um yeah. Uh, women assuming positions and claiming spaces for themselves that they haven't been able to, or maybe also in many cases didn't want to claim before, that is something that seems to be happening as we speak. Currently, um, there will, yeah, there will be, in fact, another companion volume to this one. We're working on another volume where we cast the net a bit wider. We stay within um, let's say uh, traditions that are prevalent in in India and uh, but that also are transcultural in, in in character, and we look at also more into let's say historical aspects of that in this second volume. Um, I find it I find it interesting that things seem to be happening right now. Uh, but what I find even more interesting is that um, uh, this, in many cases, also is connected to um, the fact that men are moving out of these positions. So there is a blank space that needs to be filled. And that gives the women... Uh, or gives many women the the opportunity to fill this space because and that is also 
I, I find that if I look at the case studies, that's much more often the case than the than let's say in Tarini's uh, or in Antoinette's case studies where the women kind of stand up and say no we resist it should be different and uh, um, demand that but it's it's more a silent movement that let's say yeah a movement or movements that um are more often silent than not. That's what I find. But of course, if you look at uh, that, de- also depends always on the case studies you're looking at. Mm. Well, one of one of the the metaphors or or, or, or sort of uh, truths uh, uh, that comes to me in the back of my brain as I read some of these is this uh, this Taoist idea that you know people think that you know um, rock is stronger than water, but it's really water that erodes rock over time. The, the power of yin, and I think um, um, Loco had a comment. Uh, Loco had said something on the back. I'll just pick it up and read it. Actually, she comments, of course, on 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 the the, the wide reaching and fine nature of the contributions. And then uh, what she says is the contributors press us to notice not only spectacular changes and innovations, but also subtle ones. And to appreciate how women may creatively transform tensions into opportunities. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that the title that we chose for the volume really captures this very well. so that uh, kind of the tensions are laughed off and that uh, also tensions are always uh, very often expressed in communal laughter. Um, And that, yeah, there very often is um, certainly a deep knowledge that resistance um, might not be as... uh, uh, let's say as successful as just staying on, sustaining your attitude, and and um, yeah, and that a lot of creativity is needed to adapt, and which also means at the same time it is not simply that the women are taking places that were reserved to men before, but they are also massively transforming them, even though many of them would say they don't. But uh, from my perspective, I see um, also massive transformation that goes go along with that. Mm, Absolutely. How could they not? I think you're right about that. well, thank you. Thank you for your efforts to bring together people in conversation for this volume and for so many others. And that wonderful way of being, that's that's really, I mean, clearly you could tell from the fruits alone, much less probably the enjoyment that people have coming together. That, that way of being is, is very productive, that collaborative enterprise. And thank you for your efforts in editing this timely volume. Thank you very much. But it's a great joy, of course. A labor of love, I imagine. Um, <laughs> a labor of love. <laughs> I've, I've been there. I've been yes, there. okay. Editing is not is not always a great joy, but um, yes, getting together with people, listening to people, and listening uh, to different, uh, yeah, not only case studies, but also uh, views on on these. Aspects. I mean, I, you know, I learn most of all. Right. 
I, in, in the podcast aspires after New Books Network in general, aspires after public education. But really what I say, it's really, I'm being educated in public with each author that I speak. <laughs> and so, so here we are. It's about my public education. Um, well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. For those listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Uta Huskin, uh, who is editor of uh, a fascinating uh, new work called Laughter, Creativity, and Perseverance, brand new um, um, 2022 uh, OUP. It's part of the American Academy of Religion, uh, uh, the AAR's Religion, Culture, and History series. Um, uh, check it out. Keep listening, keep well, um, and, and keep contemplating um female agency and agency in general, however gross or subtle that may look. Take care.